All right, we are uh, again in our Advent series, and uh, not to sound like a broken record, but Advent is um, if you're outside of the tradition, you know, if you come into you come into a Presbyterian church or from out, a tradition outside of that, the whole idea of Advent might be completely new to you. You might be wondering, what are we doing? I, I get celebrating Christmas, I get Easter, but why are we celebrating a whole season prior to Christmas? Uh, and the reason is it's just, it's traditionally over the history of the course of the church, the church has seen the wisdom in it's not biblically mandated, but there's wisdom in preparing our hearts and taking this season, the few weeks before Christmas, to prepare our hearts and, and to, to really meditate on those parts of God's words that teach us what it is that Christmas is really all about. Uh, especially for us in our secular bubble of, you know, I know all of you are like frantically like trying to figure out how to get gifts for the kids and the grandkids and the nieces and the nephews and parents and you know, your busy holiday schedules and how to split time between the grandparents and all that stuff that goes with the Christmas season, it's really easy to lose sight of, of, uh, of the big idea. And so Advent is, a, our, is how we keep sight of that and how we keep fresh in our memory uh, what really happened and how big, how big it really was. Uh, and maybe, uh, maybe you're looking at the passages right now, seeing it, it's two-page, and you are terrified, thinking not only are we going to miss lunch, but we might miss dinner. Uh, <laughs> fear not. The Lord would say, fear not. Uh, my guess is that this is going to be a big passage, but a short sermon, because I'm making very simple, very simple points. These three main visions are of God himself in his heavenly temple, uh, and we're going to look at what they tell us. Every true prophet of God was commissioned by God in the presence of God in the celestial temple of the Lord. All of them. Even, even Paul, as a prophet, kind of offhandedly, obscurely remarks that he knew, he knew a man who once went to the third heaven. He's talking about himself, but he doesn't want to say it's him. All the prophets are transported spiritually in vision to the celestial temple where they stand before the presence of God and this is what they see consistently and this is their story. So we're going to read through first, just the first three there. I'm gonna save the last one for a little bit later but if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This first is a reading from Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah the prophet in around 740 BC. He's praying in the temple and he's transported into a vision and this is what he sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Second vision, Ezekiel, 597 B.C. or so. He's in exile 
in Babylon on the shores of a river and he gives a description. He sees coming from the north this supernatural power structure in the storm of the same, gives a detailed description of the same types of angels, of cherubim. And on top of the cherubim, he sees an expanse, like a sea of glass. And on top of that, above the expanse, and over the heads of, this, of the cherubim, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated upon the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw his gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as if the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And now fast forward, New Testament times, 90 AD, John of Patmos is taken into a vision. This is the clearest vision of heaven and the Lord of all, all the elements that we just saw from Old Testament, same throne, same room. This is what John sees. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these terrifying and yet intensely beautiful and powerful images uh, that you have given us to contemplate your greatness and your bigness. Uh, And yet we know, Lord, that these are symbolic realities, that the true, the reality behind these symbols is even greater, so much so that our mind breaks at the point of trying to comprehend them fully, but you've given us these things to apprehend your nature uh, and the immensity of who you are. And so we pray that you would help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see as much as it is possible for creatures to see who you are and especially what you have done for us so that we might worship you rightly and so that we might be as grateful as we ought to be. We pray that you would, by your spirit, illuminate us, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey 
your perfect word as we trust that you will beautify us, your afflicted ones, through the hearing of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I was, uh, I was excited as a schoolgirl at a Beatles concert when I heard that Dene Villeneuve was producing a new adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. It's one of my favorite books from when I was a kid. Uh, and I was uh, ex- exceptionally excited about it because if it was commercially successful, now I have a whole new bin of sermon illustrations to pull out of, right? We're gonna get, I can give you a break from Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and other such things. And, and uh, so here's the first one. <laughs> In uh, the movie, one of the things that uh, the, the director, Denis Villeneuve, is uh, being lauded or praised for is his ability to capture the grandeur scale of these alien worlds. Uh, I, I, there was a, another adaptation of the movie made in 1984, which at the time I thought was pretty good, but now looking back at it, it's kind of pathetic because the special effects and the, 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 their ability was just not even close to being able to capture the vision that Frank Herbert had given to this alien world, the scope, uh, the scale of things, the sheer bigness of the sea on Caladan or the barren vastness of the desert of Arrakis. It's, the size of the spacecraft, or the sandworms, or even, even the, 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 the epic sense of the, of the ancient generations of the Bene Gesserit sisterhood. He was able to capture all of those things, and, and that was really, really hard to do. It's really hard to do that. Uh, God has kind of the same problem with us. The bigness, the grandeur, the majesty of the heavenly realms and of his person are so big and so great, uh, it's an incredibly difficult task to bring to life for us that reality. Uh, And one solution that he uses is he uses the grandeur of the ancient Near Eastern royal courts in order to do that. Uh, And that's what these visions really are modeled after. It's not that God is really sitting on a throne uh, in a room somewhere made out of diamonds and emeralds and sapphires. Uh, It's not that um, he's in a great hall or a palace surrounded by throne guardians and and royal courtiers. Uh, But that imagery was the pinnacle of anyone's imagination of what glory and power and sovereignty was at the time that he wrote, uh, at the time that these were all written, right? Everyone had heard, at least heard, of the opulence and the power uh, uh, of, the, of cities like Nineveh and the palace of, of, uh, of, the, of the emperor, of the Assyrian emperor. Everyone had heard about the, the massive scale of Babylon and the luxury and the power of it. In fact, really unrivaled until fairly recently in our history. Even today, uh, downtown San Diego, like 2.4 square miles, Babylon was four square miles back in the day, surrounded by ornate walls, and within those walls were ornate 
uh, and beautiful temples dedicated to the pagan gods, not to mention their military power. One of my Old Testament professors used to, you know, joke around about us being chronologically, our chronological snobbery, thinking that because we're born in an age of disposable high-tech that we are smarter than everyone else. He used to say, anyone who spends any time at all in the British Museum or the German Museum where these artifacts are kept quickly discovers that they were in many ways our betters. Uh, and in most ways until fairly recently. The point is that they were, for people living at this time, the royal court of Babylon was unimaginably grand. Unimaginably grand. And so God uses those imageries of Assyrian courts, Babylonian courts, as the baseline for the visions. And then he stacks on top of that this supernatural flair to give us the idea that it's even bigger than that. And what is that? What's the supernatural flair that he puts on top of it, that he stacks? And what does it mean? Well, we see the throne in the vision. The throne was in Babylon as well. Uh, the throne symbolized the seat of ancient power and judgment, and yet this throne is different. There's flashes of lightning and peals of thunder peeling off and cracking off all around it, which throughout the Bible is, this, is a description of theophany. It's a description of the power of the most high God and his holiness and his presence. Whenever it touches the outskirts of reality, reality itself begins to deconstruct because of his presence. And so it's a picture of God the almighty God as the creator and the judge of all earth with all power over all things. Not just the power over an empire, but the power, not just the power over the whole earth, but the power over the entire cosmos, seen and unseen. And then we see one seated on the throne, but not, not a mere man with superhuman powers, uh, we see him depicted as having the appearance of precious stones, probably diamonds, sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and they're forming this effervescent glory cloud that is, that is permeating everything in this beautiful, stunning aura of, of mixed color and light of the rainbow. The rainbow is the closest thing that he can use to describe to describe this, which is a picture, uh, it's a symbolic picture of the intense beauty of God and his being and his character and of his utter perfection. Uh, the seven torches of fire in the throne room are always a symbol again of this, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God which implies God's omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times. It implies his omniscience. He's the God who knows all things and the God who sees all things. He searches hearts and minds and nothing is off limits to him. And then we see in front of him, in all of these visions, a sea of glass that looks like crystal. In the ancient world, the sea, as we've talked about this a lot, the sea was considered to be like the realm of chaos and death uh, because the sea was a dangerous place and the sea would storm and it would be tumultuous and they were 
strange creatures in the sea that no one understood, and lots of times ships went out to sea and never came back. And so the sea became like symbolic in that, in that world for the, the realm of disorder and the realm of chaos, the realm of death, and it became then synonymous with the realm and the power of evil in tumultuous storm, and yet here we see the sea in front of God. It's so calm that it's like a sea of glass. It looks like smooth crystal, implying that God's victory over evil is so total, so comprehensive, so complete, that the water of death itself is utterly still. And we see the six-winged seraphim and the cherubim, these heavenly creatures surrounding his throne. Now we get thrown off by the Hallmark cards of the cherubim as chubby little babies with, with arrows, but uh, on, on one night alone, a single angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. They destroyed cities. They are terrifying creatures. The kind of creatures that if we saw, we would be, we would, as, as throughout the Bible, people would fall down as if dead. They would be so afraid they would faint. Uh, we would either be so terrified that we would fall down and faint or we would fall down in worship. And they are the protectors. They are the sanctifying barrier that surrounds God and the realm of God so that nothing unholy can enter into his presence. From the cherubim at the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword all the way up to the visions given in Revelation, the, God's people are inside, God's enemies are outside, and they cannot get in. And they're saying, uh, holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. This threefold re repetition of holy, it's a, it's a way that the Bible talks about God being utterly and absolutely perfect in every single conceivable way. Um, and all of those, all of that supernatural flourish on top of the, the perceivable grandeur of the Babylonian court was all geared towards one purpose, and that was to bring to life for us and for the readers the unimaginable bigness of God. The unimaginable bigness, the limitless power, the terrifying beauty and perfection, the all-present, all-knowing, all-seeing, sovereign God in perfect control of both heaven and earth, being worshipped by creatures that we would be tempted to worship, myriad upon myriad, millions and millions of ordered battalions of angels surrounding his throne, all geared to that purpose, of bringing our minds to the point, to the end, bringing our minds to the point of the end of our ability to comprehend. I remember when, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I used to, I used to sit and, and, and try to imagine the expanding edge of the universe and what it was expanding into. Uh, and it wasn't because I thought I was going to figure it out. It was because there was a point in that thought process where I would feel my mind break and stop. And that was, that was kind of fascinating to me. 
to push my, my mind and my ability to, to imagine in my head and to, to comprehend in my head, to push it somewhere where it failed, to the point of failure. Uh, and that's what this is. That's the point. The mind breaks in trying to comprehend the bigness of God and that God does that to let us know that this is a taste. As much as our minds are able to comprehend bigness, he is even bigger still. Man. You know, and that is a... uh, It's an awesome thought, but it's it's also a big problem. Man, it's a big problem. Why? Because the bigness of God also means that he and the celestial realms that he inhabits are unapproachable to us. Paul says straight up, God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has seen and no one ever can see. Uh, The ancients believed, the ancients believed that the very atmosphere of heaven was consisted of pure fire. They called it Empyrean. Uh, the seraphim, the six-winged angels, seraph comes from the word burning in Hebrew. It literally means the burning ones. It's a way to conceive of the highest heaven, the celestial third heaven of God where he dwells as inhabited by creatures of pure fire who exist in an atmosphere of pure fire. Uh, and what's the point? The point is, is that uh, you'd have more luck approaching the sun if you couldn't get a mile within the court of, of Tiglath Pileser III, if you couldn't get within a mile of the court of Nebuchadnezzar II, if you can't get a mile within the court of Artaxerxes or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Buckingham Palace or the White House or whatever, if you can't get within a mile of those places, you can't get within a billion miles of the celestial palace and temple of the Lord God of hosts. And yet, what do we see? We see 24 elders present in this vision, and that's us. That's a a picture of the perfected church in heavenly glory, praising God in possession of all the promises that Jesus makes to the churches in the book of Revelation. They have it. They have their crowns. They're ceaselessly praising. They have their white garments. Uh, So how did they get there? Why aren't they just smoked in God's holy presence? And that's what the next part of the the reading is, is all about. That's where Revelation 5 comes in. The first... Three visions are are pretty static. It's the crazy vision of this unimaginable power of the old boss of the Old Testament, Lord God Almighty. It remains the same in, in 740, 597, 90 AD, and every other place it is in the Bible. And yet here in Revelation chapter 5, something changes. Something fantastic happens. Let's read it. And then, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming 
with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. So what's new in that passage? Well, that scroll is new. The scroll, the scroll of seven seals is new. What is it? It's summary version. The scroll is God's covenant promise to bring judgment and salvation to his people through holy war on the earth. It's the book of Revelation. It's what Revelation talks about. Jesus, the king over all the earth, from heaven, waging war on all of God's enemies and bringing his people safely through the spiritual warfare of this whole age. Uh, and John, in his, in his dreamlike state, right, he doesn't get all the details of what's happening, but it's a dream, and he is able, he feels the full emotional weight of it. You ever have a dream like that? You don't really know what's going on, but you know it's like the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And you're distraught. That's John. He is overwhelmed. He knows a man must open that scroll, and he knows that no man can open that scroll, and so he weeps in despair. That's not like weeping like a tissue, like, oh, excuse me. Make something in my eye. It's like full-on, overwhelmed, ugly cry, fall on the floor, wailing, because he knows that if that seal 
is not opened, if that scroll is not opened, there will be no salvation, there will be no judgment, then all humanity, including himself, is lost. And then he sees the lion, who is the lamb, standing as slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah, obviously the strength of God, the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the lamb that was slain is, the, is not weakness, it's the method of his strength. It seems weak to us because we're sinful. But the method of his strength was that he was the lamb who was slain. He was, Jesus maintained his witness to truth, of the truth of God, to the truth of salvation, to the truth of the true state of humanity. And he maintained that witness to truth through crushing satanic pressure. He didn't fight back to preserve his life because he knew that his death would be the victory and that his resurrection would be birth into new life. Same is true for us. That's our strength. That is our strength in this world is to maintain witness to the truth no matter how bad the pressure gets because our death is our victory and our resurrection is our birth into the real world. And he's standing. He's a lamb that was slain and yet he is standing. And he's standing over a sea of glass, which is a victory that was so stunning uh, that evil has become still. And then the man, Jesus, takes the scroll. Can you imagine that? Nobody takes anything from God. Nobody takes anything from God, and yet here we see a man takes the scroll from God. Why? Because he's worthy to take it. He's worthy to take it because he's earned it. Uh, you know, we often say there's only one way to salvation, and that's faith through Jesus. Practically, that's true. Technically, it's not. There are two ways. The first way is for you to perfectly obey the law every day of your life without fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to fully keep not only the letter, but the intent of the law, and not only to do it, but to do it from the right motivation and the right reasons as an act of worship. Nobody can do it, but one man did. Jesus did that, and he gives us credit for what he did. That's what Jesus accomplished, and so he earned salvation. He fulfilled all the requirements of the covenant that Adam failed at, and so he was worthy. He earned the right to come and take that scroll from God, securing salvation for his people. And in this final vision, uh, it's revealed who Jesus is. Ultimately, our translations say, uh, when, they, when he sees him, it says, in between the throne and the four living creatures. And so really, it's a word that means in the midst of or in the middle. 
Uh, and so the translators have said, thought that it really have gone with, uh, it means in between. It gives you the impression that he sees Jesus in between, in the space in between the throne and the four living creatures. But really what it's portraying is he sees Jesus dead center in the middle of that whole complex. There's the one seated on the throne, and there's the line of the tribe of Judah who is the lamb who was slain standing in the same place. Uh, and this lamb has seven eyes, which are the spirit of God going forth from himself. The lamb has seven horns, which is the symbols of perfect divine power. Horns mean power. Seven means divine perfection. And the clincher is that the lamb receives the same worship as God from the angelic beings and the angels and from every creature on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that fills them. Uh, it's like taking two pictures and superimposing them on top of one another. All of a sudden, no longer is it said just the throne or the one on the throne, it's the one on the throne and the lamb together. Uh, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Who is it? Why is there such scandalous blurring of lines between Jesus and the old boss of the OT, the Old Testament? Meet the new boss, the same as the old boss. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the eternal divine son. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Uh, and so all... That's stunning. That's a stunning new thought. Because it means that all of that majesty, all of that power, all of that grandeur, all of that bigness that is so big it breaks your mind to try to reach any part of it was present on earth as a man. And maybe the only thing more mind-breaking and how big God is, is how small he became to save us. And that's what Advent is. That's what Advent's all about. Is understanding that. It's not just about a baby in a manger. It's not just about certainly not about all of our secular traditions. But it's about Jesus, the eternal divine son, the second person of the Godhead, of the same substance with God the Father, equal in power and glory, uh, coming to earth, living through every bit of suffering that we go through, being present in the womb of Mary, being born being suffering in the same ways that we do, tempted in the same ways that we are, yet without sin, and running that race for us as like our champion, fulfilling the law, 
loving the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, taking upon himself all of our sin and taking it with him to death on the cross and raised, being raised in glory. Uh, Mind-breaking. And then returning. This is this really what this is. This is the after party of the Advent. <laughs> Revelation 5. It's the Advent after party. Jesus is just ascended into heaven. If you want if you want a timeline, it's Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascends up into the clouds. He disappears from sight on earth. But from heavenly perspective, book of Daniel chapter 7 says, I saw one like a son of man emerging from the clouds, stepping into the royal temple palace of God, taking the scroll, sitting on the throne, and assuming his dominion and his power. Uh, and you know what happens? Ceaseless praise. The whole thing just erupts. It's crazy. It's like a giant celestial stadium wave that goes out from the center. First, the, the elders and the, and, the, and the creatures praise God, and then all the battalions of angels praise God, and then all the creatures of all the earth that were ever created stand up symbolically and praise God in ceaseless praise. Why? Because what Jesus accomplished was so good. And because who he is is so good, they just couldn't help themselves. Just erupted. And that should be our response to, not just because of what Jesus accomplished for us in his first advent, but also because what we know he's going to accomplish for us in his second advent. And if the first advent was good, the second advent, that's gonna be even better. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how, uh, what amazing clarity you're able to give us. We can't comprehend these things. We can't even begin. We can't even begin uh, to imagine who you really are in your being, Lord. We'll never know that, but you've, you've given us truth. You've given us truth to hold on to. And it's a truth that says the true bigness, goodness, uh, perfection, glory, all of those things of you are beyond what our minds can understand. And because of that, we can trust you. We can trust you that what you have prepared for us, even though it breaks our minds now, when we get there, we'll understand it and we'll be able to fully enjoy it. So we thank you, Lord, uh, this Advent season and this Christmas week and Christmas day. We pray that you would help us to hold on to this in the midst of uh, the whirlwind and the chaos. Not just the bigness of who you are, but how small you became to save us. And we pray that it would just create spontaneous and ceaseless worship and praise from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's all stand and let's praise God together.